Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Mark DeBoer, Professor of Infectious Diseases at Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands and the current president of the Dutch Working Party on Antibiotic Policy, known as SWAB, which, would you believe it, spells swab. This is the first of a two-part episode with a good doctor. After obtaining his medical degree in 2001, Mark trained as a resident in internal medicine at Bronovo Hospital in The Hague and Leiden University Medical Center. Subsequently, he enrolled in the Infectious Disease Fellowship Training Program in Leiden. And after registering as an infectious disease specialist, he completed a PhD. Thereafter, his focus of research shifted towards the increasing threats posed by antimicrobial resistance. This is truly an existential threat. Since then, Mark has participated in grant-funded research, including randomized controlled trials on the topics of antimicrobial therapy, prosthetic joint infection, antimicrobial resistance, and more broadly, antimicrobial stewardship as a senior researcher. In 2017, he was appointed to develop and chair a new national education program in infectious diseases for residents in internal medicine. And since February 2020, Mark has chaired the Dutch National Advice Service on Medical Therapy for COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. Mark's also a qualified clinical epidemiologist, and in 2019, he was elected a fellow of the Infectious Disease Society of America. He's frequently invited to lecture and has authored over 100 publications in the field of infectious diseases. In his spare time, astonishing that he has any, Mark enjoys playing chess, gardening, sailing, one of my passions, and walking his dog. I can't wait to find out more about this inspiring man and his wonderful career. So welcome to the podcast, Professor Mark DeBoer. Thank you, uh, Jonathan, for, uh, for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, let's start with your origin story. What inspired you to go into medicine, infectious diseases, and took you into the areas you're involved with? Well, that's a nice first question. I won't make it too long. Just some things to raise. When I was young and at school, I think I was interested in two things the most, and that was in biology, understanding life, and in mathematics. So I also liked and was intrigued by abstract problem solving. But as it goes, some teachers talked to me and advised me to study medicine because I'm also a people person. I like to work together with colleagues. And, and actually, the study turned out really well. And of course, I, at that time, I never expected to become a professor in infectious diseases. But I think one of the red lines was that I had great mentors. And as it goes, you're also inspired on your way uh, by patients and by teachers I like, I think. And I had great opportunities in Lyon University to study uh, infectious diseases here in the Lyon University Center for Infectious Diseases. But for example, I also uh, went to Africa, to Malawi, where I had the opportunity to do an internship in medicine, and I really was catched by the burden of infectious diseases there, which also motivated me to go further on the path of infectious diseases. Later on, I was trained as an epidemiologist, and of course, epidemiology and infectious disease really much match well. I'm interested also in human behavior and environmental exposure, 
And intrigued also by the fact that infectious disease actually is that another living organism invades the human body. And that leads to host pathogen interaction and the cause of disease, yes or no. And these things are all very important in understanding all aspects of infectious diseases. And somehow we went from one project to another to having a research line, PhDs, but I'm still involved in clinical medicine, treating patients and leading other uh, young physicians to uh, their, uh, their final occupation. And that really motivates me every day to, to go on. So I'm, I'm not sure where it ends actually. You know, it's it's a classic statement, isn't it, that the ward, the hospital ward is the ultimate laboratory and the opportunity for us to, to learn and to see science uh, in effect. I certainly experienced it that way, yes. And obviously having the experience in Malawi and seeing a very different spectrum of diseases, I'm, I've, I've had the privilege to travel the world on the back of medicine and, and every time you go somewhere new, you learn something new. So although most of our listeners are healthcare practitioners, Mark, some are not. Can you please frame the scale of the issue we have with antibiotic resistance and then tell us about the Dutch Working Party on Antibiotic Policy or SWAB? I presume that stands for something um, in, in, uh, in, uh, not in English. It's a great name. Uh, and so tell us about the mission. So first of all, the scale of the problem of antibiotic resistance and then tell us about SWAB. Yeah. So the scale, as by now I think everyone is aware of, is worldwide, of course. But the fact that we call it an issue sounds like it's all bad uh, antibiotics, but it's, of course, far more complicated than that. We have, in fact, multiple issues. So, so let's just start with a positive view. Antibiotics really help achieve the level of modern medicine uh, as we can practice it today. Uh, organ transplantation, for example, and many other complicated procedures wouldn't be possible without. But the use, every use, also its appropriate use, is the driver of the increase of AMR through selection of more resistant bacteria that may cause infection later on. But why it's such a big issue is that it's not limited to healthcare alone. And I want to highlight the one health perspective here. So we use antibiotics and xenobiotics, which are actually molecules that can have the same action on bacteria as normal antibiotics, but these kind of molecules we don't know or use as antibiotics per se, everywhere. So in veterinary medicine, in industrial processes, etc. And it really contributes to environmental pollution. And uh, bacteria are longer on this world than we are. They know a huge diversity. And all these bacteria somehow combat other bacteria and fungi for millions of years already. So within our environment, the resistome is huge. There are like all kinds of options. And if you expose these bacteria with the uh, massive production of antibiotics and xenobiotics we as a human race now uh, produce, then you will select more resistant strains. And this process is ongoing in, I think, almost all environments worldwide. Yeah, so that's, that's actually uh, one of the core issues with AMR. It's great medication, saves lives. We use it carefully and that would be best, but there's also an access versus access problem, problem. There are parts of the world where people do not have access to antibiotics and uh, in very poor areas and they'll 
as you know, suffer more from infectious diseases. And here we have a lot of antibiotics and we actually overuse it. So there's also inequity in that inequality, I should say. The Dutch Working Party on Antimicrobial Policies, and SWAP is the Dutch acronym, is an independent foundation that was initiated and founded by the professional societies of the hospital pharmacists, the uh, medical microbiologists, and the infectious disease specialists already more than 25 years ago. And if you want to, if you want to change something in the practice of medicine, it are those that practice it and understand it that can make the first changes. And of course, you have to work together with stakeholders. And we do, we work close together with the government and the inspectors and others, but we are an independent foundation that uh, works uh, together with the government on the surveillance of antimicrobial resistance in the Netherlands, issues the guidelines for the treatment of infectious diseases in uh, Holland. And what we also do is that we have made an online antimicrobial formularium uh, that's used by almost all hospitals in uh, in the Netherlands. But we do much more, actually. We also have a stewardship working group and we issue a guide also for the practical implementation of antimicrobial stewardship in hospitals. So so that's, that's how we work. It's really flat organization. More than 150 specialists are uh, involved uh, actively. I think all the practitioners in the Netherlands know our foundation as the body that that does this work yeah so that's what we do so you, you your comment on uh, the use of antibiotics i believe that something like 90 percent of antibiotic use is not in humans it's uh, in the food industry for feedlot animals is, is that your understanding yeah so it, it depends per country uh, because in the european union uh, some countries already have uh, implemented legislation that limits the use of certain antibiotics uh, or antibiotics in total in uh, the veterinary industry or in other industrial processes. And it's not about antibiotics alone, so antibacterial compounds, but we also have to look at, for example, antifungal compounds. And it can be in, in paint or your toilet or your bathroom. And in many, as you say, in many, many industrial processes that are about food production. And if the waste of this production is, is, is just loosed into the environment, then of course, it's no wonder that we finally will see more resistant fungi. The amount, but the, but the amount I'm not sure of, I think nobody knows the amount exactly, and it's difficult to measure something we should look into better. Yeah. And of course, there is the, you know, the things that I'm very keen for people to be thinking about, you know, when we have these global problems, everyone tends to defer it to the governments, but governments no more than representatives of peoples. We as individuals, we certainly as healthcare professionals need to take ownership. So let's talk a little bit about collaborations. International collaborations are important in medicine. But in your field, collaborations with groups like the Infectious Disease Society of America are critical. As you know, to paraphrase, someone sneezes in Wuhan and someone in Leiden dies. So tell us a little bit about uh, international collaborations in your field. Yeah, so it's about collaboration, but also starts with communication, of course. And um, 
just to take your example of someone who sneezes in Wuhan and someone in London dies. So uh, there's a lot of travel persons worldwide. And I remember that in January uh, of uh, 2020, when COVID hadn't arrived in, um, in the Netherlands yet, but was already in Wuhan, that uh, we did see some travelers from China and we located them um, uh, in a special place in the hospital to do the test and we sent the PCR to, to another hospital somewhere that, that already had the PCR in place. So vigilance is, vigilance is critical, communication is critical. Um, between professional bodies, certainly yes. Uh, between medical communities, even more important. So what did we know about uh, how the early epidemic in China evolved? Not a lot, because we lack information from clinicians on the floor who weren't maybe also not allowed to, to communicate openly about what was happening. And that's why I started with communication and open, uh, open channels uh, for these kind of pandemic preparedness. Um, we learned also a lot of other things from COVID, I think. So uh, it's emphasized again that epidemiology is extremely important. So um, I think also epidemiologists felt that some, at, at once they were in the spotlight uh, and they really had to explain that they were not the ones treating the patients uh, because people thought so. Uh, but epidemiology is extremely important because maybe in the future we can see things coming better. Um, and with respect to AMR, so moving away from COVID a bit, uh, resistance travels too. Uh, that's what we see that if you sequ sequentially uh, show the uh, maps of Europe or other sites in the world, and you map the resistance, for example, in E. coli, then, then people usually turn from green to, to red eh, over, over 20 years time, uh, if you know what I mean. So uh, you have pandemic preparedness for rapid pandemics, but AMR actually is a slow pandemic and collaboration and communication is important there too. You know, it's interesting, Mark, I've never, heard anyone describe antimicrobial resistance as a pandemic, but it is every bit as much a pandemic as, you know, the novel coronavirus. So uh, I thank you for using that phrase because, you know, words do matter. The way that we phrase something and the way that we get people to think about it is, is also important. So let's switch topics for a moment. We'll come back to antibiotics, but as I said in my introduction, you've led the Dutch National Advisory on Medical Therapy of COVID-19 for hospitalized patients from February 2020. What were some of the important lessons learned in this patient cohort? I, I've been fortunate to have a couple of guests over the last few years, and especially during the pandemic, talking to doctors about what they learned um, in their institutions and how we can uh, educate ourselves more globally. So yes, Tell us some of your important lessons from uh, hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Yeah. So over, over the past two, three years, I think this was a really special learning curve for everyone. And uh, if I just can relate what we learned to, to, the, to the medical evidence that was available to make decisions uh, like we had to make them on advising medical therapy, this curve is looking like this. 
First, we had no medical evidence for the treatment whatsoever, only rumors. And I was criticized by colleagues that in a national newspaper, in an interview, I was explaining that as a medical community, we really had to learn the ins and outs of a new disease. So because we actually were in the dark about many things and well, some people criticized me because they said, well, how can you leave people in the dark like that? And, and, and that's not very hopeful, uh, not a very hopeful message. But I said, I replied that it's actually the truth. And I still think so at that time. Then there is another phase of impaired evidence. And I can refer, for example, to the hydroxychloroquine uh, hoax. At first, there were some uh, letters from China that this, this would be the only uh, medication that would have some clinical effect. But there were no well-described cohort studies. There were no randomized controlled trials, nothing at all. And uh, but but people were coming in and uh, mass, in particular at the time at, in Italy, and there was a there was a quite a surge in patients. And then we moved to the to the to the phase of first evidence. And I remember, for example, that in June 2020 there was a recovery trial from the UK large collaboration. Um, excellently led uh, from Oxford University and actually showed that corticosteroids were useful in treating the patients that were most ill. And by the time already, there were also more uh, well-designed cohort studies that indicated that hydroxychloroquine was of no use at all. And that was a very exciting time because um, you had one randomized clinical trial. And normally, of course, you don't make antimicrobial policies on one trial or even on cohort studies. You, you try to avoid that and, 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 and just assume that more evidence will follow and then make a decision. But here in the pandemic, there was no choice. So the pressure on formulating the ins and outs and the background of the uh, advice on how to treat inpatients in the Netherlands uh, it was huge and, and we actually had a meeting almost every week, reviewed all the evidence, uh, refined the statement and then uh, we moved on to, to the next literature search and the next meeting. So it was uh, an enormous amount of work. Of course, uh, we did it with a very large group of specialists and we had several levels uh, on which decisions were made and of course that's necessary because it's it, it's very easy to make mistakes in this first part of the of the process where you have so little evidence available and then later on it becomes more easy because uh, you get trial after trial and then every uh, piece of evidence uh, is, is very welcome at that time and and that's a very nice uh, situation to be in because uh, things are becoming more clear gradually. And thereafter, there's another phase in which more evidence is appearing, but it hardly adds anything or only shows that some uh, medications are really not useful uh, as expected. Uh, ivermectin is, is one of those agents. So, um, yeah, we learned a lot about judging the evidence and interpreting it and uh, putting it together. Uh, that was a very nice process, but of course there were also other issues around that. We were criticized, of course, by, by people and didn't believe our thorough evaluation of the, of the evidence. 
yeah so you have to you have to be aware of that and and take all necessary precautions to be able to explain uh, what you were doing so mark more broadly given that there will be other epidemics pandemics how better prepared do you think we are what what lessons have been learned that could influence future infectious disease management and policy well uh, i'm sure we more epidemics or pandemics will follow how better prepared we will be also will depend on the time between this pandemic and the next one, because human memory tends to be short, you know what I mean. And uh, what we have seen actually is that in countries where the basic health care structure was good, the organization was good, that professionals were well trained and there's a good healthcare infrastructure and materials available that those countries actually were better able to manage uh, the pandemic than countries that weren't in such a good position. So uh, the basic healthcare structure is, is one of the main things that, that should be in order. But there are other things like um, are the professional organizations uh, willing uh, to invest in being prepared? Uh, I'll give you an example for hemorrhagic fever. Uh, we are one of the hospitals in the Netherlands that, that are able to, to receive and treat patients for it. But that means that with your medical staff, you have to train regularly, that you have to check on the uh, isolation rooms, whether they are still okay, uh, that you have to invest in the logistics and also train that. And well, so it's, it's also willingness to, to invest and keep up to date the preparations that are needed to actually manage an important pandemic well. And then it comes to medical leadership. I think the third pillar of uh, being prepared that no matter what, that at the time that it happens, you need people that really stand up, see that there's something new, that things need to be done and that are able to, to uh, deal with the increasing insights that are rapidly evolving and take appropriate action together with others. So that's the third thing. So what, one thing we learned is that that's very important too. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I would add to that, we've got to have a better approach to social media and disinformation because my goodness, you mentioned the uh, chloroquine issues. So yeah, we've got to do that much better. So changing focus again, can you give us an overview of your research on prosthetic joint infection and its implications for patient care? I know my orthopedic colleagues are always so, so concerned when putting in prosthetic joints. So yes, tell us about this. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan, for asking. One of my favorite topics and, and one of my separate research lines, it, it actually, it, it's close to the topic of AMR, but from a far different perspective. In, in prosthetic joint infection and, and implant infection in general, bacteria are sufficiently affected by antibiotics due to biofilm formation on a foreign body and the immune system can't reach them either. It's very interesting. And what I like in particularly that in the clinical field, this really needs a multidisciplinary approach. So you work together with orthopedics, neurosurgeons, with, with trauma surgeons, they all deal with patients that have very chronic infections, materials that don't function anymore. There's, there's a lot of morbidity in this patient group 
and it's actually a real a real challenge to come up with better treatment strategies for those that are infected and i think we we failed to invest enough in understanding the biology of survival of bacteria and their recurrence from a biofilm uh, the amount of research is is increasing and and it appears that this whole process of bacteria in the biofilm is more dynamic than uh, we thought so first many years ago it was mainly seen as kind of static situation of bacteria that were metabolically inactive in a biofilm and if you stop the antibiotics they start growing again but it, it's more like a cycle so what we see in our uh, lab uh, where we do basic research uh, we develop a mature biofilm model in a week grown on small disks of infant material and what we aim with that is to have uh, uh, an animal-free um, model to understand the formation of persistent cells and processes that happen in the biofilm. Uh, and then we can try combinational strategies. We, for example, work with bacteriophages, older antibiotics uh, and combinations, but also with uh, induction heating and applying physical stress. And, and what I wanted to say is that uh, from that, can learn and other groups are also very much into this is that the process of bacteria in the biofilm and propagation there and exchange of for example also resistance mechanisms is uh, is quite complex and it's it's not that bacteria go from planktonic state to a persistent state but there's something in between and it's, it's very exciting to to study how how that works and uh, well it's of course only step by step because the point of the PhD is to improve, uh, to improve the model. We are working together with uh, some other centers to uh, study the effect of bacteriophages, etc. So it's, it's very exciting. And on the other hand, we're doing clinical study. So with the affiliated hospitals around us, we started a prospective cohort study to look at the quality of care for patients with PGI. And in the Netherlands, we are rolling out and actually performing now a clinical trial where we put in one arm pesticide therapy uh, in the oral phase of treatment with rifampicin and echinolone, and in the other arm uh, ammonotherapy with preferably clindamycin to see whether more options for patients with prostate joint infection exist. And that's really needed because we now depend on a trial that was performed more than 20 years ago. And in hindsight, you can well, you can criticize that. And so it's time to, to shake that up and, and see whether we can advance this, this field. That's, it's fascinating. We've got so much more to talk about, but I'm afraid that's all we have time for today for this episode. Thank you for being with us, uh, Professor Mark de Boer. There's much more to explore in the next episode, and I, for one, am looking forward to it. Mm -hmm.